Amen. It has been really good to be together worshiping our worthy Savior and God and King this morning. And we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And we are going to be studying the verses that um, Jeff Baker read just a few minutes ago. So if you're not still there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 5. It's on page 840 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. Um, so introduction here, really short. Just want to ask two questions and have you think about them as we head into this chapter. Do you ever struggle to feel loved by God? It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer out loud right now. But I imagine most of us would say, yes, we've struggled to feel loved by God. Second question, what do you do when you feel that way? What do you do to address that? Mark chapter 5 has much grace and truth for us with those questions and certainly more questions than that. So let's dive in and consider point number one. There's an outline. If you didn't grab one, you can run out and grab it, or the points will be on the screen as well, and you can follow along that way. So point number one is the St. Jude chapter. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, one commentator kind of offhandedly said that Mark 5 might be called the St. Jude chapter. So apparently, those of you who have some Roman Catholic background, maybe you know what I'm getting at here. St. Jude is the patron saint of desperate cases and lost causes. So it's why St. Jude hospitals focus on the hardest cancer cases and other life-threatening diseases in children, okay? But don't worry. We don't need to pray to St. Jude this morning. Jesus is where we need to go with our desperation and our hopelessness. So last week, we looked at the first 20 verses in chapter 5, and we saw Jesus take a man whom no one could subdue who lived among the tombs like a wild animal. He was always crying out and cutting himself. He was a man demonized by a legion of demons. And we saw Jesus cast out those demons with a word. And then this man was sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And then he wanted to follow Jesus and do whatever Jesus wanted him to do. Now this morning... We have two more desperate cases in verses 21 to 43. So look again at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, because remember they were on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gerasenes, um, kind of a Gentile territory. Now they're back on the other side. And a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death, like she is at death's door. She's fading fast. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. In Greek, that word can be translated that she may be saved. So sometimes it refers to healing, sometimes to salvation. But again, the wordplay is there, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with her, with him. So you can imagine, if you're this father, hope is kindled. Jesus is going to come. 
He's still full of anxiety. Are we going to make it in time? And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, maybe some menstrual disorder or some hemorrhage of some sort, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So she suffered not only from the disease but also from the cures, the attempts to cure her. Again, desperate cases. So in chapter 5, the first seeming lost cause, man demonized by many demons, then the desperate father with his dying daughter, and he has this high status as a ruler of the synagogue. So this is high status desperation. And then there's this woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years, and she is in low status, even no status, but she's desperate as well. All these situations are hopeless apart from Jesus. So we're going to actually begin with the woman with the hemorrhage in verse 27 and see that she actually got more than she bargained for. Okay, point number two, more than she bargained for. Look at verse 27. This woman had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. I will be saved. Same word. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, because he's all about the action and Jesus is doing things and it's happening fast. Immediately, as soon as she touched his garment, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So all the strong men couldn't bind that demoniac. No chains or shackles could hold him. But Jesus subdued him. The physicians can't heal this sick woman, but Jesus can. So the glory of Christ, who is this, is being revealed in the book of Mark, especially in the first half, as we've mentioned in previous weeks. So this crowd is hurrying along with Jesus to get to Jairus' house, hopefully in time to heal his daughter before she dies. And then this woman who suffered for 12 years with a bleeding disorder tries to obtain a secret healing and ends up halting the whole procession. So the way that Mark explains her condition in verses 25 and 26 certainly kind of awakens our sympathy, right? Um, Even though she's of no status in that society, she would have been an outcast because of this malady. We feel for her, right? She would have been constantly unclean for 12 years. She's in physical pain. The emotional, the social toll would have been heavy. The smell would have been hard to hide. The anemia, the weakness, the fatigue would have been constant. Like, put yourself in this woman's shoes. So how can you not smile when we read immediately she was healed of her disease? But her approach See, we just, we're just happy about this, but her approach would have been problematic in the first century. If we can get into the world of the Bible and what's going on in the, in the minds of these people that were following Jesus and the first readers, this would have been problematic. It would have been offensive. This unclean woman dares to touch a holy man, a rabbi, a respected teacher. And you can even imagine that there might be those in the crowd whom she pushed past to get to Jesus, and they would have been offended by her carelessness. Because if she's unclean and she touches them, now they're unclean until evening. You can read about that in Leviticus. 
So anyone she touched would have been unclean according to Jewish purity laws at the time. So if they had known her to approach Jesus if she was seen and kind of called out by somebody was a risk. It was risking further social ostracism and shame. So there's risk here, but also she may have thought that a crowd would have been her only hope where she could approach him without detection and the risk of rejection. You can imagine the response of a Pharisee, right? Like you dare to heedlessly impose your uncleanness on us. Shame on you, woman. Look what you've done. Imagine a Pharisee. I have important meetings this evening. Now I can't attend. You've made me unclean. So it takes courage here on her part. You can imagine how scary it was for Jesus to stop like he did. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So this is like the group, in a sense, as it were, like in the ambulance, going to the ER, and his disciples are like, why are you stopping? And who touched you? This is a crowd. Like, there's people bumping you left and right. A little bit disrespectful. You see the crowd pressing around you, Jesus, and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus just ignores what they have to say, and he looks around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. The desperate father fell down before him. Now she's falling down before him, and she tells him the whole truth. This is beautiful courage and this humble integrity in this woman. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Same word for salvation has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So again, took courage for her to come forward. Seems that Jesus did this to publicly honor this woman who would have lived under a cloud of shame for her perpetual uncleanness over the last 12 years. So he honors her publicly. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So he doesn't rebuke her for making him unclean. He commended her and called her his kin, his family. He gave her commendation, not condemnation. He made a public announcement of her faith and thus also her purification. Like, just see the heart of Jesus. Who is, who is this? Yeah, he can calm the storms, you know, with a word, but he's also so tender and kind and loving. So it's worth stopping and asking, why did Jesus stop and call her out? I mean, it, we've considered a few reasons already, but think about how Jesus gave her more than she bargained for, okay? She just wanted healed. She wanted to touch his garment, get healed, and disappear, but Jesus wouldn't allow that. Now, imagine you're Jairus. How would you feel right now? Like, imagine you're in the ER with your child, and she's coding, and the ER doc is on his way down the hall, running and someone steps in front of him and says, doctor, I've been suffering from migraines and vertigo for the last 12 years. And imagine that ER doctor stops and starts dealing with that case. It's like, hello, triage. 
Like, she, I, I feel, I'm, you know, like I get it, but my daughter's dying. So was it like spiritual malpractice for Jesus, the great physician, to stop and thus risk the life of Jairus' Jairus's daughter? You could pronounce it either way. You know what malpractice is, medical malpractice at least, is negligent professional activity or treatment, especially by a medical practitioner. It can apply to other disciplines as well. Was it malpractice or was Jesus doing this on purpose? Okay, maybe we know that the answer is obvious, but we would do well to ponder why Jesus is doing it this way. Jesus intends to give this woman more than she asked or thought. He does give her the healing and cleansing that she sought. But if he would have allowed it to come by stealth, like just be healed and then fade into the background, he would have allowed her to go away with just an impersonal and perhaps even superstitious magical view of Jesus' power. If I just touch his robe, Jesus did not let it be a, a unilateral thing, but rather made it a relational encounter. He wanted her to know that faith in Jesus made her well, not just the magical, superstitious touch of the cloth that he's wearing. It wasn't the mere touch. So the disciples' comment, disrespectful and dismissive as it was, kind of points to the fact that mere touch was not why she was healed because lots of people touched Jesus. So as one commentator, William Lane, writes, it was the grasp of her faith rather than her hand that had secured the healing she sought. Her touch had brought two elements together, faith and Jesus, and that had made it effective. So he, Jesus, wanted to meet a person, not just dispense a healing. And he wanted her to encounter him in a personal way, not just impersonally receive a healing. She wanted a thing, healing. He wanted to give her himself, a person, a relationship with him, and ensure that her faith was in him. So she wanted to be made well. She wanted to be healed. And if that's what you want, what you really need, then Jesus is the one to go to. I mean, his name means, in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Yahweh saves. So Jesus called her out. Maybe she initially wished that he would have just moved along, but then she would have missed out. So because he called her out, she had to courageously tell the truth and stand in the light. That's harder but it's better. And why? Because Jesus wished to honor her faith. Yeah, it took more than she bargained for, but it was because he wanted to give her more than she asked or thought. And in so doing, she actually becomes a model of discipleship, of faith and discipleship. Okay, the theme of discipleship runs all the way through Gospel of Mark. So this woman is at the bottom of the social status scale. Jairus is near the top. Jesus delays his commitment to Jairus for the sake of this unclean woman. And you know what happens? She becomes a model of faith for Jairus. Sorry, I'm going back and forth. Um, 
She was not an interruption, but a living illustration of what he will call Jairus to do. Do not fear, only believe, which leads us to how Jesus gave Jairus more than he bargained for as well. Point number three, look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So, I mean, if you're there, you can imagine this, like, okay, all hope is lost. But overhearing what they said, because they said it to Jairus, not to Jesus, he ignored what the disciples had said, right, before, about people touching him. Now he ignores what those from Jairus' house said. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Again, only believe, like, What's that supposed to look like? What does that mean? Well, you just saw it. The unclean, low-status woman just showed you what faith looks like. God chose the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, James 2. Beautiful reversal in the kingdom. So, 37, verse 37, he had allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Why does Jesus say this? This child is dead. He could have just walked quietly into the room. They laughed at him. So this, we may not realize this, this is kind of weird once you hear it, but in the first century, there was actually a guild of professional mourners. And if you had a funeral, you actually were required. So not only was it normal, but it was required to hire a few of them for your funeral. There's this expectation. I mean, even if you were poor, you would hire mourners. So maybe you can see how they went from weeping and wailing to scornful laughter in a moment. It just seems so jarring. It's supposed to be, but obviously for some of these people, this was a job. It was perfunctory. It was performative, okay? And it shows that they thought they knew better than Jesus. Can you think of another time when there was unbelieving mocking and laughter not long before a resurrection? There's lots of arcs in the Bible, lots of pointers, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So Jesus put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means little girl, just little one. These are very common terms. Honey, I say to you, arise. Just, just get up. This is the way that a parent would wake up a child. He doesn't say, be now thus resurrected, you know, like same thing with the wind and the waves. Jesus didn't wave a wand. He didn't, you know, incantations. And he said, shh, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed. 
And here, this little girl is dead, and he just says, wake up, honey, time to wake up. Who is this? And immediately, don't you love it? Immediately, just like the flow of blood was dried up immediately here, immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. She's not, you know, nine months. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. I mean, the crowd was overwhelming enough already. And maybe also this could be a result of the arrogant unbelief of the mourners. And then there's this beautiful detail. And he told them to give her something to eat. Like how, again, how kind, how humane. So Jairus was desperate for his daughter's healing, what parents wouldn't be. Jesus wanted Jairus to trust him in the face of the impossible, even in the face of death itself. He wanted to raise his daughter from the dead. He wanted to show Jairus and his disciples, including now, you and me, if you're a disciple of Jesus, that he can not only save from death, but he actually has the power over death. So it took, yes, we can say yes to that. So it took more than Jairus bargained for. Jesus called for faith in the face of what seemed like malpractice delays and utter impossibility. But it was because Jesus wanted to give to Jairus and his family more than he asked or thought. It was to reveal his glory. Who is this? Same thing with the blind man in John 9. Was this because his parents sinned? I mean, he was blind from birth. Usually, you know, you're suffering as a result of your sin. They had this like karma theology, you know, like Job's friends but he's blind from birth, so did he sin in utero or was it his parents' sin? Or what? And Jesus says, no, this is so the, the work of God will be displayed in his life. Jesus is gonna show his glory. There's purpose in this. Same thing with Lazarus. He could have come and healed him. He waited. And it's not because he didn't love Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. Do you ever struggle feeling loved by God? He's going to do this with us as well, you know. This is his pattern. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So why did Jesus say that she was only sleeping? He knows she's dead. If you look at the other gospel accounts, the parallels, it's clear. Girl was dead. I mean, these professional mourners, this isn't their first rodeo, okay? I love this quote by Tim Keller. The answer is in what Jesus does next. He sits down, takes her hand, and says, honey, it's time to get up, and she does. Jesus is facing death, the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race, and such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it. Honey, get up. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. 
Don't you need to hear that? I need to hear that. We're all going to die. Welcome to church. You're going to die. Jesus isn't going to deliver us from every disease and sickness. He may heal us at times in our life and praise his name. We'll thank him and praise him for it. But one day he will not. Something's going to get you and take you out. That's scary, isn't it? Especially if you actually sit with that thought. Maybe you've really felt the weight of it at a funeral where it's kind of like a rehearsal for your own death. Like Ecclesiastes says, says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting for the living. This is the end of everyone and the living will lay it to heart. Oftentimes we don't want to lay it to heart. We want to push that as far out of our mind as possible. But we need to hear this. Yeah, death is scary. The finality of it all. We hate aging, shrinking horizons. We fear pain and the loss of control and the unknown. But if Jesus has you by the hand, nothing can ultimately hurt you, not even death. So Romans 8, 35 to 39 is true. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Don't just run by that. Those are like real threats. All of those could cause you to wonder if God really loves you. I don't really feel loved by God right now. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He gave his only son. If he didn't spare his only son but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give me everything I need to make it all the way home and be more than a conqueror en route? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I need to hear that. You need to hear that? This is all because of King Jesus. Psalm 73, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand, my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and one day it will for all of us, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, if we step back a bit, we can see that both of these incidents point to greater realities. Okay, they're both signposts of kingdom realities, okay? So point number four, kingdom signposts. Both of these stories, like I said, there's these arcs, these trajectories, you know? It's like signposts point somewhere, right? So this healing that Jesus gave this woman, healing, cleansing, salvation and healing, and go in peace, It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to give. The healing, the soul healing, the cleansing from the defilement of sin, and the shalom, peace with God, and ultimately peace forever 
in the, the rest of the new creation, like rest, peace, the eternal rest. This is, a, this is like a foreshadowing. It's a little trailer for the movie that's coming. Previews of coming attractions. That's what this woman is. And then the resurrection that Jesus gave this girl, this family, is a foreshadowing of the made alive together with Christ that happens by grace through faith in Jesus and the one day when Jesus will return and make all things new and raise us from the dead, imperishable, with new bodies just like Jesus' body. So that little girl is a foreshadowing of what's coming. Here is the great physician. Here is the resurrection and the life. So the woman needed healed and cleansed. Jesus did both and sent her away in shalom, go in peace. He wanted to make her whole. See, biblical concept of shalom is like holistic human flourishing. So in the garden, sin is like knifing the fabric. And it brings in all kinds, like division, all kinds of in, inner trouble. Like a guilty conscience. And if you try to like suppress that truth, you're kind of lying to yourself. You need integrity. You need to be made new. You need to be able to walk in the light rather than run and hide in the darkness. And only Jesus can do that. Sin brings interpersonal, you know, conflict and enmity and strife and division. And Jesus can heal that too. Right? We're one in Christ. So this peace comes we can have peace with God. I am a guilty sinner. What in the world? I can't atone for my own sins. I can't pay for my sins. I can't make it better. Like, I'm toast. But Jesus can pay for your sins. He did on the cross. You trust in him. He takes all of your sin. You receive his righteousness, and you are reconciled to God. You have peace with God. You can have it now. And there's a day coming when there's not going to be any more trouble. It is going to be perfect peace forever. So you see foreshadowing? And the same thing with resurrection. If you trust in Jesus, you are made alive together with Christ. You're saved by his grace. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But we still live in this broken world. But one day, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make all things new. New creation. So do you see how these healings are signposts as we walk on the way in this life, under the sun, in the valley of tears, pointing us like, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. You see, that woman didn't just need a healing. She didn't just need a gift dispensed from Jesus. She needed Jesus. And the same thing with Jairus and his daughter. If he would have just raised her from the dead even, but then that was it. She's going to die again. Same thing with Lazarus. So, why are you weeping? <laughs> At one level, that seems silly and laughable, but, but ponder that. Take it seriously. Jesus knows something they don't know. It's similar to, 
to what he said to the disciples in the boat after he calmed the storm. Why are you so afraid? Um, we just about died. The boat just about capsized because Jesus knew something they didn't know. And again, it's what he's here to do and who he is. He's not just going to heal a woman or raise a girl. He's going to do something much deeper than that. He's going to break the power of death. He's going to deal death its death blow. He's not here to just raise a girl only to die again. He's going to ri rise from the dead, give people the promise of resurrection, eternal life. He's come to reverse the curse and undo death. So this little girl is a foreshadowing, a signpost of Christ's power over death. He can, he will raise up from the dead easier than a parent can wake a child from a nap because sometimes that's kind of hard. But <laughs> raising us from the dead is not hard for Jesus. And so fully and finally, signpost, where is it pointing? Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will, shall be no more told my family the last week, probably will never get a tattoo. If I ever get a tattoo, I'm putting that in Greek on my arm. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So do you see how Jesus wants to give us more than we ask or think? So final point, more than we ask or think. All these were hopeless cases. But they were more hopeless than they thought. They didn't just need demons cast out or diseases healed or even just raised from the dead. They needed Jesus. They needed the salvation that only he could give them. And that's our situation too. So let me read this quote from Tim Keller as we draw this to a close here. God's sense of timing, and this will fit in with the way that we opened up with that question about God loving us. God's sense of timing will confound ours, no matter what culture we're from, because he talked about how different cultures have different senses of time and, you know, what's early and late and all that, different in Africa than it is for some parts of the Western world or whatever, you know, so different senses of timing. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. When Jesus looks at Jairus and says, trust me, be patient, in effect, he's looking over Jairus' head at all of us and saying, remember how I calmed the storm? I showed you that my grace and love are compatible with going through storms, though you may not think so. Well, now I'm telling you that my grace in love are, and love are compatible with what seem to you to be unconscionable delays. It's not, I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's, I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me.
And then he writes, if I could sit down with you and listen to the story of your life, it may well be that I would join you in saying, I can't understand why God isn't coming through. I don't know why he is delaying. Believe me, I know how you feel, so I want to be sensitive in the way I put this. But when I look at the delays of God in my own life, I realize that a great deal of my consternation has been rooted in arrogance. I complained to Jesus. Okay, you're the eternal son of God. You've lived for all eternity. You created the universe. But why would you know any better than I do how my life should be going? They both got more than they bargained for. But they both also got more than they could ask or think. And so do we. It's not easy, but it's better. Oftentimes, our felt needs, it feels like they're being neglected. It seems we struggle to feel loved by God. We want healing. We want out of a jam. We want our problems fixed or to go away. Why aren't you answering? Why did you let that happen? Why won't you do something about this? We are spring-loaded to try to manipulate God or people or circumstances to get what we want. And when we don't get what we want, we get angry at God and people and circumstances. He loves us too much to reinforce that folly by just giving us what we want. But often it's because our true needs are being addressed. We want success. Jesus wants us to humbly trust him and find our identity in him. We want more money. Jesus wants us to trust him that he will provide. We want fewer responsibilities and more freedom. Jesus knows that living small, selfish lives is not the path to freedom, but slavery. So he repeatedly pushes us out of our comfort zone so that we will love sacrificially and have to depend on him for the strength and motivation to do so. We want more things or more opportunities, especially the ones that those other people have that we don't have. And Jesus wants us to learn the secret of contentment, that he is enough for our every need, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We want healed of our disease. Jesus wants us to experience that his grace is sufficient for our weakness and also to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us when he returns. So we are tempted to use Jesus sometimes to, like a tool to get what we want. Jesus will not allow it. He aims to give us more than that, to give us himself. Trusting him will mean more than we bargain for, but it'll also mean more than we ask or think. I couldn't help but think of Johnny Erickson Tata this morning as I was thinking about this. If we could go to her as a 17-year-old before the accident, before she broke her back and became quadriplegic, and offer her no spinal cord injury the morning of that accident, who wouldn't avoid the suffering? Who wouldn't take, you know, take that offer? But trusting Jesus as her Savior and Lord has led her into more than she bargained for. But he's given her so much more than she could ever ask or imagine. And it's only just begun. So Jesus is saying to us, do not fear. Only believe. And I think we may say, we believe, Lord Jesus. Help our unbelief. Let's pray, and then we're going to transition to the table here together.